You can listen to episodes of Conversations with Joe earlier than everybody else and completely ad-free on Nebula. When you sign up for Nebula, our creator-owned streaming service, you not only get access to ad-free content from my channel, you also get bonus episodes in my videos and exclusive series not available anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. Hey there, and welcome to the Answers with Joe podcast. I am your intrepid host, Joe Scott, and today I'm interviewing Greg Porter from Greg's Garage. Greg is a friend of mine. Uh, we are in a mastermind group, so I see and talk to Greg like about once a week, and uh, he's a really cool guy, really smart. Uh, he does some really awesome stuff. He's an architect by day, which is impressive enough, but he also works with 3D printing. He built his own CNC machine by hand, which is incredible. And he's just, he's, he's been doing a lot of stuff in the world of fabrication and manufacturing and construction. And he's got his finger on the pulse of where things are going in terms of computer design, uh, AI becoming involved in designing uh, products and buildings and stuff like that. And he also is going to talk quite a bit about just being a designer, what it's like to be a designer and a maker, somebody who wants to change things with his hands to adapt the world around him to fit his personality, which is not really something that I am. I'm more of a storyteller, but uh, it's a really interesting take on the world, and I think he's an interesting guy. So uh, you guys sit back and enjoy it. There was some technical issues with the recording, and, and he drops out every once in a while, and I apologize for that, but hopefully he won't get too lost. But uh, so enjoy this interview with Greg Porter. But first, people are always asking me how they can help with the show. A lot of times these are people who don't have the funds to support on Patreon, but they want to do what they can to support what I've got going on, which, hell, I appreciate being told that. It means the world to me. But something you can do, and it costs you nothing, is just tell people about Canker Boy, because YouTube doesn't pay my bills, but Canker Boy does. It's a product I created and a service I provide, and it helps people, and it keeps the light on around here. So if you know anybody who's always complaining about their mouth ulcer, just tell them about Canker Boy and share it on social media. We've got a really funny commercial out there right now, and so if you share it around, give your friends a chuckle. It might just help spread the word. Every little bit helps. And I thank you very much. All right, it's podcast time. So you are the only architect that I know, I think. I think you're the only architect that I know. And that's pretty rare. What's that? I said, we're pretty rare. Well, it's, it's, like, it's like an impressive profession. Like, that's what George would say he was on Seinfeld to try to impress people, you know? Um, and so, that, yeah, I'm like, I don't think I, like, I have a friend who works in interior design, and she, does, she works with architects, you know, but she doesn't, she doesn't do architects, so... Um, how did you, how did you wind up doing that? Like how, what was that road like? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of funny if I go back to in grade school, my parents had us fill this book out every year. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up and mm -hmm. who's your best friend and what's your favorite color and all those kind of things. And somewhere around third or fourth grade, I decided architect was it. And I'm kind of a guy of commitment. You know, I've had the <laughs> same car for 20 some years, I've had the same girlfriend or, uh, well, she's now my wife, but 25 years almost. And I, I kind of lock into things and it was literally, I, it started out, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And I honestly, I still want to be a cartoonist. That's if, if you ask me what I really want to do, it's I want to draw cartoons. But my mom told me early on, you'll start to death being an artist. So pick something that's a little bit, you know, more 
out and she always worked in law firms and things like that. She really yeah. wanted me to become a lawyer. I said, well, I've got to find something. This is a third grade mind coming up with this. I've got to find something where I can draw, but still be, you know, still make money. An architect kind of seemed like it. And as I grew up, I mean, I was very into building models of things. You know, you go to the store and you buy like a car model or a plane model or something. I did planes when I was a kid. Yeah. And I would build them, but I was always really bored with whatever came out of the package. Mm. I always either wanted to cut something off of it or add something to redesign part of it. And so it was obvious that I was going to do something that involved coming up with things that didn't exist yet. And so architecture really fit that bill. And actually, my senior year of high school, I was traveling around going to um, different universities and things like that, trying to figure out where I was going to go to school. And in the state of Missouri, they don't have an architecture school, so you have to go out of state. Well, I was looking at some of the in-state schools, and they were trying to convince me to become a structural engineer because it's almost like being an architect, but it's, but it's not. And I really wanted to be an architectural engineer, which is both degrees, uh, both, you know, both, both lines of thought. And um, I, I knew that if I just did engineering, I would lose the creative part. And I knew, of, I thought if I just did the creative, I would lose all my math and science background. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wound up going to KU for a degree in architectural engineering. And about one semester into it, I realized that my teachers for kind of core classes like calculus didn't speak English and wound up uh, not failing out of the engineering program. And that's not the right way to say it. Not understand the subject matter. And calculus is a subject that can be confusing enough uh, that you need somebody to explain some concepts. If you don't get those early concepts, it just flies over your head. And now, when that's you say they didn't speak English, you mean they, they literally didn't speak English. You don't mean that calculus was a foreign language. No, I mean literally my teacher spoke Chinese yeah, yeah. and did not, did not speak English. And, you know, we had the dean of schools in there. Because <laughs> you would ask him a question, he would just laugh. And then he would go on with whatever it was. And anyway, it was... Uh, I don't want to go into the details of that, but it, but it was terrible. And I thought, you know what? I didn't do well my first semester. I'm going to get in second semester. I'm going to get a tutor. I'm going to have a different teacher. It's all going to work out. And I walked into my first day of calculus two, which I passed calculus one with a D. Um, and walked into my first day of calculus two and the same Chinese guy was sitting behind the desk. And I literally picked my books up, shoved them in the bag, and my classmates who I knew from first semester were like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to become an architect and not an engineer. And I dropped out of engineering that day. And <laughs> I was focused on architecture. And I would tell you that I'm really glad that I did. I am far more creative than, than I am. I wouldn't say analytical, very analytical, but I, I don't have the mind to sit in front of a spreadsheet for hours on end, mm -hmm. and the engineering really take kind of grit when it comes to numbers and that sort of thing. I understand them. They all make sense to me. I just, I would much rather be creative and drawing things. That's cool. So I can, I can totally see when you're talking about um, taking models when you were a kid and wanting to add to them or do things with them that they weren't supposed to do. I was the exact opposite. It was just like, I had to follow every single thing and make sure I did it just right. And if there was a missing piece, I was like, ah, my world is turned upside down. Um, but, but I think that really speaks to like your, um, just your mindset as a maker 
you know, everything that you see around you has been invented and developed either by a product developer or an architect or some type of a designer. And I always look around and see things and it's like, well, either I could improve things or I could do something different or this thing doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of, kind of cool that I can do that at home on a level of, you know, most of the things I build here in the garage are, let's say, smaller than a car. So I can deal with that scale that's very manual. But then at work, I deal with, you know, a thousand square feet at a time, you know, 80 million projects and, and that thing. So I get to work in two very, very different scales, which is just fascinating to me. It, it's kind of funny. I design buildings and our horizon is 50 to 80 years. Yeah. And like right now, we are starting to see the demolition of some of the buildings that were built in the 20s because they are at the end of their useful life. Mm-hmm. You you can put money into them and rehab them. And some buildings are worth doing that because there's a historical significance or something like that. Other buildings, truly, there's no real historical significance. They were built in the 20s, they've lived their life, and now we're taking them. So almost 100 years later, we're taking these buildings down. Anyone who was involved in the construction or design of that building is long gone. And I'm designing buildings, and we tell people all the time, you know, our, our... horizon our second one is the 80 so we figure in 50 years you'll be doing what we would say are major renovations in 80 years you might be looking to take the buildings down well in 50 years i'm going to be 93 years old and in 80 years i'm pretty sure i'll be pushing up daisies so the things that i'm doing now are going to outlive me yeah. and the you know, everybody wants to leave their mark or leave something behind and everybody it's a little bit different, you know, do they want to affect humanity? Do they want to raise kids or, you know, what do they want to do to leave behind? And I'm leaving behind a series of buildings and it's, it's kind of surreal sometimes. That whole profession is that. And I would, I would tell you, and I don't want to brag about being an architect. That's not what this is about, but it's, it's such a different profession in that, when I draw a line on a piece of paper, two years later, that line becomes a physical thing. Someone else makes it, you know, and I show up on a job site and I say, I remember putting that line on a piece of paper. And now this thing is in place till after I die because I put that line on a piece of paper. It brings a different weight to what you do. You really think about these lines that I'm drawing are very, very serious things. Yeah. That's like, you know, that's Okay. No, that's a really interesting topic because that's partly the the way I feel about screenwriting is I'm creating something. I mean, it's the same situation when I write the, the words and then I go to the set years later, usually, and yeah. it's an actor reading the line. It's like, wow, this is, this is actually coming to life. That's so crazy, you know? But it's also a, a, a sort of, um, you, you know, when you make a film, like how many movie stars have we lost, but you can still go watch Audrey Hepburn you know, on, on screen and still like have her like imbued in your life in some way, you know? So it's like filmmaking as well as architecture, they're, they're both ways of kind of creating something that will outlive you. Architecture has a purpose, right? It's mm. it only, only in monument making do you build something to not be occupied. 
or used, right? If you, if you build a house, it's to live in. If you build a school, it's to go to school. And if you build an office building, it's to go to work in. And when you start looking at historic preservation, you, you start crossing that line of buildings that are no longer occupied. They rarely restore buildings, historic buildings, to use. Mm-hmm. They restore them as a monument or a relic or a museum or a something. Mm-hmm. And while I think museums are great things, they preserve our history and all of those kinds of things, great works, I would tell you that building as a museum, you know, a building as a museum isn't, isn't always the highest best use of that building. And I think the original architect, the original designer, the original owner would tell you use the thing you know it's like people who restore automobiles and put them in museums for people to come and breathe on right automobiles are meant to be driven and you know i i'll go on record as as a guy who drives an old car every day to work and people say why would you drive that you might get in a wreck because it's a car it's meant to be driven. <laughs> I think buildings yeah. are meant to be used if not they're they're just a monument and i you know, I don't want to get too sidelined, but my boss, my former boss, um, lives in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And is it was built, it was finished by Taliesin students after Frank died. So it was finished in 61. Frank mm-hmm. died in 59. He had designed it. He did all the drawings for it. It was ready to go. He just passed away. And so the Taliesin students came out and finished it. And he was going to... Um, get involved with the Frank Lloyd Wright Preservation Society and so on and so on. And they told him you can't live there anymore. You have to hand over all the original drawings and you know, all of these things, all of these rules. And he's like, it's my house. <laughs> this is, this is where I live. And having gone through that house, it's, it's a house. And, and it's so good to see a Frank Lloyd Wright building in use, how he intended it to be used rather and as a museum, walk in this strip because it, it, it's a completely different flavor. Yeah. So I wonder how much of what you're talking about is sort of like an American attitude. Because when I went to London, uh, it's been a while now, but I remember going into a pub that was established in 1750. Yeah. And, and I was just like, this pub is older than my country. You know, but but I, I can't. I mean, I know there are some places on the East Coast that are that are much older. Uh, but I know. I mean, I'm, I'm in Dallas. If it's 30 years old, it's a historic marker. You know, but uh, that that the whole idea of it having a lifespan. I just wonder if that is sort of an American thing, because clearly, in other places, they you know, because on one hand, I do like the idea of it sort of having a lifespan and and then moving on. But then also just I don't know. There's something about sitting in a 200 year old pub and kind of feeling that that history there you know yeah and I would say that I don't mind you know if you're going to renovate a building renovate a building I think it's a great thing to do don't don't get me wrong there I'm saying to renovate it just to be become a museum or, or an, a piece of don't touch more because it's it's historic you know they used to trade furs out of the lower floor and you know in the 20s flapper girls were you know, all yeah. of that kind of stuff I think part of it is our history is so young, we think it's all important because there's so little of it. And when you go over to, uh, I lived in Paris for a while when I was a student, and you go there and the buildings are 500 years old, 1,000 years old, 
and you look at the density and you look at the amount of space that's available, they have no choice but to use that space. There is no reserved for viewing only over there. It's, it has to be used because of the density. And you, you see these thousand year old buildings that are being saw cut so that a door can be put in so that a store can operate in the way that a modern store operates. And there's a, I'll use a very good architectural word, there's a juxtaposition of this very new and modern and very, very old and medieval in terms of architecture together. And it makes for some of the most, you know, as an architect, you know, I mean, that's like, you, you dream about doing cool stuff like that. You don't get to do it here. You could do it over there, but not here. And it's such a neat thing because, because architecture is, it's utilitarian stuff. Yes, it can be beautiful. Yes, it can be art, but it's made for utility. Yeah. So one last thing, we can get off the architecture thing, but like, uh, you know, I went to Santa Fe this last, uh, a couple months ago this summer and not knowing it was one of the most, it was, I think it's the earliest or the longest established inhabited place in North America or something like that. Cause like the, the natives that lived there before the Spanish colonists came over had been in that same area since like the year 900 or something, you know, okay. um, there might've been some Vikings somewhere in Nova Scotia that got there earlier. I don't know, but, but it's, it's, that was fascinating to me. And, um, and have you been to the Santa Fe? I have not. Okay. So, it, it well you know the style the santa fe style with the adobe and the things the woods planks that come out i don't know what they're called they'll have names but uh it was everywhere i mean it was everywhere to the point that I was kind of like okay we get it <laughs> you know uh you know, the, the, the mcdonald's doesn't need adobe for us to get that we're in santa fe okay uh, it was it was just overwhelming, but um, I remember I was there and I was curious about all that, just kind of what this all about. And you know, I did a little reading, and it was around sometime in the '60s. I want to say '70s. Um, the I, I guess the industry in Santa Fe was kind of going away; it was becoming more of a tourist place. So to embrace the whole tourist thing and get people to come over, they adopted this whole Santa Fe style and started literally just decking out every single building like that. So. It was made to look hundreds of years old, but it was like 30 years old, you know? And, and that really took a lot of the charm out of it for me. It, I mean, it was, still, it was still a beautiful city and I, I enjoyed it there uh, for the culture and everything else. But I, that, I don't know, that, that, it just looked like a whole facade to me after that. It, it, it was, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that, but it, was, it, it bothered me. Well, it's interesting to me in that, and it's, it's kind of funny, and, and again, if we want to get off this architecture tangent, we can pretty quick. But, but when you look at how architecture evolved over the years, you know, through history, and you look at a place like Santa Fe, or you look at the desert places, and, and there's these very particular things that they do with concrete floors and adobe walls and how they're put together. And it's to keep the sunlight, keep the building cool, and to do these other things without modern electricity and air conditioning and fans it's it's these very natural passive things and these all these lessons that we've learned since since the time people started building buildings and then in the year whatever 1960 with the advent of indoor you know electrical and heating and cooling and all these things and you copy that style it sort of becomes counterintuitive it's like there's a reason modern buildings look they do is because they perform very different than their older counterparts mm -hmm. and it's, it's kind of funny 
because we look at as architects looking at from a technology standpoint what we we keep asking ourselves what the hell happened in the 80s in the 1980s <laughs> in the late 70s and early 80s we forgot everything that we learned all of these very passive things that make our buildings better we completely forgot about them and started like just making things as cheap as we possibly could and and all of these things and when you look back the buildings that were built in the 80s are trash now mm-hmm. you know they're they're 40 years old and and they're just it's like wow they have they have really done terrible in in comparison to buildings that might be 80 years old right the old brick and stone and all this kind of stuff is a is a really great building material and, and in the 80s it was like how can how can we make this cheaper well, let's make it out of 2 by 4s and 10 stories tall and these terrible ideas and and now we're in the in 2017 and we're looking back and we're trying to learn from the mistakes that we've made and we're starting to get back to some of those traditional methods of stacking buildings in different ways and making them much more insulated and efficient all these kinds of things mm-hmm. and and the only way to figure those things out is to look way back in history at the evolution and then you really weird dip in the evolution where everybody lost <laughs> their minds part of it was the price of oil part you know i mean there there's a whole bunch of things at play there but uh it it's interesting how we we are now relearning those lessons that we learned 80 years ago yeah i think we're finally starting to understand from a technology perspective how we can go back and capture some of those design cues now which is which is a really interesting thing and it's it, it don't want to segue into what i do here but when i look at some of the 3d the the machinery that we have and the 3d tools computer those are maybe not single handedly but single handedly bringing that stuff back because you don't have to draw it on a piece of paper with dimensions you can simply build the model and hand it to someone mm-hmm. i mean think about to trying to tell somebody how to build this bottle with with straight dimension strings you know this is uh, 4.7 inches this comes in a, you know in the radius of this is not an easy thing to do but now that we can draw it all in three dimensions in the computer and, and Gene builds it that doesn't have to interpret those kinds of weird drawings. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think we're at a very very different point now as designers to be able to open that treasure chest of toys and be able to do things that we couldn't do 15 years ago. Well, that is a perfect segue to exactly what I was wanting to get to eventually. Um, so uh, no, the 3D printing stuff. I mean, so so you built a CNC machine from scratch. in your garage uh for for people who don't know what a cnc machine is uh tell them cuz i didn't i didn't know until i started watching your channel and yeah sure it's uh so cnc stands for computer numeric control mm-hmm. and basically it is it is a machine that has one motor or multiple motors that tell different axes how to move and you can use whatever software you want to program that movement and it's it's no different than uh I don't know if Showbiz Pizza was all over the country but for sure Chuck E Cheese where they have the robots you know it's it's an electronic thing you know you you tell this motor how far to move and then this motor and it's all timed and controlled by a little circuit board and so in the world of making things you have 3D printers you have 
uh, CNC routers, you have plasma cutters. Some things can only cut in two dimensions, so X and Y. Uh, some things can cut in three dimensions, which is X, Y, and Z. Then you get a fourth axis, which allows X, Y, and Z, but a rotatable fourth axis. Then you get a fifth axis where the head can swing over and reach all over the place. And then, you know, it goes up and goes crazy from there. But essentially, you add enough axes in and you can literally carve away anything that you want from anything that you put in. You put in a block of material, you can make it come out exactly how you want it to. Mm -hmm. Then from a 3D print standpoint, so the router is what they call a subtractive process. You start with a block of material and you subtract from it. A 3D printer is what we consider an additive process. So you start with an empty volume and then you add material to it. So my little 3D printer, which sits just over there, it has uh, what looks like a bunch of trimmer, uh, string trimmer, weed whacker string. Uh -huh. And it has a little piece that melts that string. And, okay. and so it turns into liquid plastic and then it through dimensions and deposits that plastic until you have a positive thing. So, so yeah, so, so those are the sub subtractive and additive. But one of the other technologies that's even a little bit more interesting is there's a, another kind of additive process where they actually use, it's a, it's a plaster. So it's a powder form plaster mm -hmm. and you have a box and it, it puts down one little layer of plaster, like very, 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 very thin. And then it squirts some kind of a hardening agent over the plaster, very much like an inkjet printer. And then it puts another layer of plaster down, and then it squirts more hardener. And six hours later, you wind up with this big plaster thing, and you shake out all of its innards, and you can actually have interlocking gears uh, that are printed, things that float inside of other things, because those layers of plaster will support floating pieces as it, as it builds. Oh, really, because there's a layer in between whatever it is building on top of, and yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, whether whether the plaster is hardened or not hardened, it's still there as a support material. So mm -hmm. you can get these very very finely detailed, I and mean, you could make a chain out of it. You could you could do all kinds of stuff, but uh, they can make an entire engine block uh, prototype out of it and have all the hollow passageways for liquid cooling and things like that. So. Really, I would tell you in the last five years, it, it might be closer to 10, but really five years, they've made a ton of progress in making that technology available. The little 3D printer that I have was under $200. I did a video on building it to show that, yes, you can order these things. They do work. They do print out parts and you can invest. I want to say it was like uh, somewhere around $120, $150, something like that. Huh. And it prints parts, it works. And, you know, for somebody trying to understand how that whole uh, technology works, things, how to envision something in your mind and then make it come out, it, it is, a, it is a, lot, a little bit of money, very, very worthwhile to spend it. I imagine. It feels like they first started talking about the whole 3D printing thing like 10 years ago. And I really thought they'd be more ubiquitous by now. Like it's still something that seems like, you know, makers like yourself and people who are kind of crafty are into it. But what's, why is it not just like a, an appliance that we all have in our homes where if I wanted a bowl, instead of going to the store, I could just order it, you know, the schematic online, just download it and just print out a bowl. 
You know, um, that's a great question. And I think um, some of the early printer guys called them wrap machines, and that stood for um, rapid reproduction, meaning the machine could print another machine, could print another machine. <laughs> and in fact, one of the one of the guys who's a subscriber to my channel, and I, I watch him as well, uh, he sent me a bag of 3D point and said, here's all the pieces you need to build a 3D printer. Just add motors and a few other little doodads. And it's like, oh, that's really cool. And it wound up that I could buy this kit that I bought cheaper than I could piecemeal out the things that I had left to buy. Mm -hmm. And But I think the reality is they're much more difficult to control than what people think. So people get them and they realize that the first print that comes out isn't always going to be perfect. You really do have to tweak them. You have to, I mean, it's a, it's an inexact science a little bit mm -hmm. to get clean parts that come out. And I'll go back to this. So I picked one of these up and I said, this one was no good. Can you see how it's screwed up here on the top? Vaguely, but you're very small on my screen. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But compared to this one, that has a nice clean logo. Uh -huh. um, this one didn't print right. So this is garbage. And I'm pretty good at 3D printing. And I still get garbage parts every once in a while. Yeah. So that's part of it. The, the good 3D printers are still expensive. There's no doubt about it the ones that are very repeatable. But then the flip side of it is, yes, you can download all kinds of models that have already made. There are no shortage of little Yoda and Darth Vader's on people's desks around the country that have got a 3D printer. But to transfer that from sort of catalog item to something very useful or unique or whatever, it takes somebody who's going to model and create and design that part. Very few people have that acumen. Or on the, on the side of the person that's actually downloading the, the plans and actually doing it themselves on a 3D printer. Or are you talking yeah. about the person who's creating the plans? I'm talking about the creator. Okay. So, I mean, what are the chances? If we think of an example of something in your house that's plastic that might break, yeah. it that you could download a model of and print. I'm thinking of like the toilet paper holder in your bathroom, right? Oh, okay. The part pieces yeah. together with a spring. So to replace the one that you have, have things have to fit together, right? You know, the other piece that you have, the receiver and, and all those kinds of things. So what are the chances the one that's online that you can download it actually works for that? I don't know. Uh, I think that's really what it is. When you look at, that very much like think of the last year of your life how many things have broken in your house that you would replace by 3d printing if you had a 3d printer it's probably pretty few mm -hmm. and when yeah. you do need one it's really nice to be able to just pop it out of the printer but in all reality you're not going to need that every day you're not going to probably need that every week but if you're creating things that don't exist, it is something that you might use every day. But like I said, I think that pool of people who are going to create new things is relatively small. And that's why you don't see them everywhere. So I think simply from a practical perspective, that whole 
idea that everybody has a 3D printer that could just print out their glasses and bowls and silverware and stuff. That's just, that's just not practical because we don't need to buy glasses and bowls and silverware all that often. Well, and so the other thing, this is kind of interesting, and I don't think, I don't think most people realize this because they haven't seen a 3D printer work. I should say most people over the age of 12, most people, most grade school have a 3D printer. Um, but to print a part like this might take an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, yeah. Just depends on the machine, depends on all factors. But to print a set of silver might take an entire evening, you know, to print a whole place setting might take a few days. Yeah. So, you know, thinking about when you're not going to use plastic silverware every single day of your life, but you might use it for a picnic. Say you're having some people over and you're going to have a picnic. Well, to print out enough silverware for a party of 12, it might take a week or two. And so it's incredibly impractical because you don't need that technology when we have injection molding and some other things. Mm -hmm. I think really the 3D printing fits very, very well on the prototyping side of things. But from a manufacturing side of things, we have so many processes and type genes that can make things by the millions mm -hmm. very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, automated and manufacturing. Yeah. So, so um, that kind of actually, that might be a good jumping off point to what are the strengths of 3D printing? Where do, you, where do you see it going in the future? It seems like you said you just came back from somewhere where they were doing some really cool stuff. So Autodesk has a facility in Boston called the Build Space, and they have some huge equipment that you wouldn't normally have access to, and basically you submit a proposal for what you want to study or what you want to research, and uh, if they accept your proposal, they allow you to come out somewhere between six and eight weeks, sometimes a little bit longer, sometimes a little bit shorter. Uh, I know there's been some people there for about six months and there's been some people like me as short as five weeks. So um, you get to go out there and use all their big machinery for whatever you want to use. So they have a water jet cutter that I want to say is about 16 feet long and probably 10 feet wide and you can put sheets of metal up to three inches thick on it and it will cut through it with water. Oh my God. I think I've seen some videos of that. That's insane. It's uh it's fascinating. I'll, I'll grab a piece. This is all covered in styrofoam because I'm cutting things on my CNC. But this is a bracket that I made on the water jet. So drew this in a CAD program. It's just a 2D uh, set of lines. And it just cuts it all out and puts the holes in there. I got another piece over there with a bunch of text on it and some other things. So you can do some really cool stuff. Um, but they also have beyond the water jet they have machines that uh, one of the guys went out there was putting logs entire you know big logs like eight foot long probably 24 to 36 inches in diameter into this machine and it had a five axis head and it could go cut things into that log so he was carving uh, what looked like quilted furniture uh, cushions into logs so these logs looked like furniture that came out of ethan allen it was the craziest thing i've ever seen wow. um so they had that machine that it, it can do just amazing things uh they also have some smaller machines that make smaller pieces and parts they have machining equipment 3d printing laser like um these little parts i just happen to have these here on my bench today 
but these are some guitar tools that I made while I was there, and these are laser cut out of acrylic. So um, a little bit of, of etching to put a logo in there and some text, but then the perimeter is just cut out on a laser, and these literally just take seconds to cut. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, But anyway, so they had a bunch of different technologies, and one of them, I'm a little disappointed I wasn't there to see it up and running. They had the machine there, but they didn't have it figured out yet. It was a machine that would take oil of steel. And are you familiar with... Uh, you know, construction with two by fours, you'd call them a stud, right? A two by four stud okay. that makes up a wall. You put them every 16 inches on center and you put drywall on. Well, in commercial construction, you use what are called metal studs. Same shape, same size. They're just made out of sheet metal and they form a seat. Right. Much lighter, much less expensive and very straight and all these kinds of things. Well, they would take these coils of sheet metal and they could put them through this machine and it would come out with this steel stud on the other end. Okay. That machine exists, that's how they manufacture steel studs, nothing new, right? Mm -hmm. But they added an automation and a, a computer-controlled part that could do any stud that you could at angles, it could cut it to length, it could put holes in it for other things to happen, it could figure out in the computer when you drew a shape how many studs you needed, what size, what angles they needed to be cut at, and how they could be fastened together to create any structure that you could come up with. Wow. So as an architect, it's funny. If we design a wall that's curved, the price of that wall goes up exponentially because people are afraid of making that curve and how much time it might take them. Uh -huh. When you have a machine like this that does not care what, what the input is, all, all it's doing is sending sheet metal down and it's moving it however it You take that cost factor completely out of the equation. I think as a designer really opens us up to new possibilities because now we're not fighting the budget to get what we want because people are afraid of doing things. Fear is a huge de uh, deterrent to designers like me being able to do what they want to do, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And I would tell you from the machining end of things, um, if I were going to machine one of these traditionally, with a guy on a manual machine. It would take him forever to get all of these things. It would cost a fortune. But on a CNC machine, the CNC doesn't care. It just moves in whatever shape you want it to move in. So you can make things that are complex like this without having to pay that huge penalty. And I think, you know, to kind of tie it all together, I think that's the next frontier is back to the designs of the 50s and 60s that were very, let's call it bulbous and, and imaginary and mm. had these really sexy curves on every car that went around the corner, that all went away because of budgets and money. And we're bringing it back because the machinery is allowing us to do it. At a, at a cost that's, that's terrible. Right. Yeah. It sounds like something that could open up a whole new style of design because people aren't tied down to the materials that they used to have to kind of work with. Now they can form the materials around the designs that they want to do. Absolutely. And, and I would tell you when you look at composite materials and when I talk about composites, I'm talking about um, metals that are combined with other things in a process or carbon fiber that's combined with a resin 
around a form work and that sort of thing, there, there was a guy who was at the build space, probably the about the build space was the people that I was around. It was full of people from MIT and Harvard and people from around the world at other universities doing really innovative things from a, from a thought leadership perspective. Some of them didn't have the hands-on uh, that, that others did, but there was a guy who was uh, found a way, everybody knows what corrugated cardboard is, right? Mm -hmm. And when you look at wings of airplanes, they are doing corrugated aluminum in a very similar way, these honeycomb aluminum structures in airplane wings, right? Well, one of the things, those are very expensive things to do because it's very complex shape over a certain area and that sort of stuff. This, the, one of the guys who was there was working on a way to do corrugated cardboard out of the same machine in any thickness that you wanted. So no breakdown in production, no, no extra cost to whomever, but he could go from like a half inch thick panel up to a 12 inch thick panel with no change in machinery. And taking things like that, that is, that is sort of step one. And I, I don't think I'm stepping outside of any confidentiality when I say that because he was showing things around and, and it, was, it was a known thing. But to see that kind of step one, in creation of a very complex cross-section in a piece of something. I don't care what it is. That's the next evolution in what these machines are going to be able to do. Um, there was another gentleman working on a project, and I won't go into specifics because I do know there are some confidential things there. But when you think about architecture and when you think about structural components of a building, we look at <clears throat> like an I-beam, right? It's just an eye and it's continuous all the way along. All the heavy lifting in that I-beam, no pun intended, is in the middle of that beam. That's where all the weight, you know, if you have two posts out here and it's equally loaded, the middle of that beam is doing the, the very hard work. Out at the ends of that beam, it could be half the thickness, maybe a quarter of the thickness. So if you were able to shape a beam in the way that it actually loads and resists loads, mm -hmm. you would come up with a beam that has this, uh, uh, dimensionally complex cross-section across the length. Nobody can do that because the machinery that we make those beams with are these big rollers, they roll things in and out, and, and that's that. This guy was developing some technology, and I'll just say some technology, that would allow us as designers to create dimensionally complex beams. And that is a game changer Architecture, yes, but in the world of aerospace and some of the other product manufacturing, pro for sure in the automobile industry, when you look at crumple zones and you look at things like that, how do you manufacture something that takes an impact in a crumpled way, right? Uh -huh. You could totally do it if you could affect the cross-section of a piece as it's being made. And one of the guys there was working on this and you know, you, you just sit back and you ask yourself, does this guy understand what he's really doing? This is, this is the first of a bunch of steps, but it's going to lead to something incredibly cool. So there was a video that I watched. I want to say it was a TED Talk. It might not have been TED, but it was something like that, some kind of smart person on stage talking. And they were, they were talking about this new 
design that incorporated AI. So it was like the computer was working with a designer to design a car or something like that. And, and yeah. some, of the, some of the stuff that it was coming up with just looked alien, but it actually was creating an extremely strong uh, structure with a lot less material and kind of like what you were just saying, like just finding a new innovative way to design things that, that would get a better result out of it. Well, I think um, what's interesting is as a designer, where we are at technologically. So Google can read at like a sixth grade level, I think. Mm -hmm. So a sixth grader, if you give them a list of design parameters, they can understand what you want. If let's just for argument's sake, say I want a sixth grader to make a chair. I can say it has to hold 250 pounds. It has to have, a seat capable of supporting a butt of this size, however you want to say it, and it, it needs to fit the human dimension of a full-grown adult and, you know, suspend them, let's just say, 18 inches above the earth. Yeah. You can now put that into design software, and design software can interpret what you want, and it can iterate design options for you. So you put in the parameters, three legs, four legs, 18 inches above the ground, 250 pounds. And it is going to start iterating, boom, 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 boom. And as a designer, instead of starting with a blank piece of paper, now you've got 50 options and you look at them and you go, well, I like these three. Now we can put the human touch on that and we can say, you know, people aren't going to like the look of this because it's leaning funny or, or the legs don't come in perpendicular, or whatever, the, whatever the criteria is that you don't like. But the computer can do that first step and it can do it in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah. It, it's not 10 or 15 minutes of you sitting there sketching 100 ideas, which um, one of our typical, like, writers brainstorm and, and generally business people brainstorm things. As designers, uh, one of the tasks that we do all the time is we generate 50 concepts whenever we And it's a way past the first easy ones, get into the hard ones. Well, then when you get into the first layer of hard ones, then you develop a second or third layer of, of even more depth. And when you get to that 50th idea, you've got something, right? There's some substance there that isn't just the knee-jerk reaction. Right. And the computer can do that in 10 seconds. <laughs> so you're kind of leapfrogging ahead to the more interesting stuff and then uh, put your own touch on it. Yeah. And what's interesting is, like, I'm looking at it thinking, you know, at what point is it going to be designing an entire building? That's probably very far off in the future. Maybe not, but it might be. But if I need a bracket to hold up a beam in this situation, it's going to be very quickly be able to tell me, well, if you have 50 beams in your building that are all identical, here's the best way for it to get those out of a sheet of quarter inch plate steel. And it can deal with parameters like that, that very quickly you can find the lowest cost solution to something that you don't really care what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's something that I haven't been working with yet, 
but the folks that I visited with absolutely have, and I've seen the results from it. I can probably actually send you a picture, Joe, the results <laughs> of it. And it's, it's fascinating because the computer's just dumb in, in some respects and that it doesn't think about it. It just, it just solves the problem. Right. So a lot of the things are goofy looking, but every once in a while it'll hit on something and you're like, well, absolutely. That's, that's it right there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you a chance to talk about your channel a little bit to anybody who hasn't heard of you or is not following you. Like uh, what, what kind of stuff do you talk about and how are you incorporating some of the stuff that we're talking about here into what you're doing and how is that going to change in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of the, the things that I say that I do on my channel are design, fabricate, and customize. Mm -hmm. So I think everything I do has a bit of design background on my channel. So I don't do anything where I just recreate a piece of Queen Anne furniture. That, that doesn't happen in my shop. But what, what I might do is take a piece of furniture that I've seen and reinterpret it the way that I think maybe fits my personal style better. Mm -hmm. And as difficult as it is for me sometimes to incorporate it into videos, I try and talk find a certain thing a certain way. I also talk about the tools that I used, whether that was just sketching on a piece of paper, whether it was using SketchUp or Fusion 360 or Revit or whatever software, and then how do I interpret that into the built piece? And so is it a manual thing? Is it a CNC thing? You know, how do I bring these ideas to life? And my channel started out with me restoring an old Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Mm -hmm. And while everybody who watched my channel back then thought it was just all about car restoration, it was about car design. I redesigned my Carmen Ghia to look like what I wanted it to look like. There is no other Carmen Ghia on the planet that looks like mine. Um, <laughs> you know, I, sewed, I sewed up a custom interior. I filled in the air grills on the front of the car. I made it look like it was designed in the 50s, but it's a 70s car. I took design cues from different things. And, and customize the car because that's what I felt fit my personality better. Mm. And that is one of my know, favorite cars of all time, by the way. Mine or just the Carmen Ghia in general? Well, the Carmen Ghia in general. But, but no, I remember seeing one of the videos where you were actually like stitching the steering wheel. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, how does the guy do that? Like, I don't even, I don't even know how that works. That's, it's, it, was, it was amazing. Like, I, I don't know anybody that, that has that level of, I guess, detail and that kind of thing. Well, I heard a quote two weeks ago, and I had never heard this quote before. It really surprised me. And it said that um, given any set of tools, a, a true artist will go to any means necessary to get their idea to come out exactly like they envisioned it. And I will tell you that while the CNC is a great machine, at the end of the day, if it doesn't produce the result that you want it to produce, you have to be willing as a designer to throw everything in, go brute force, old school, you know, sand down a block of wood with a, with a piece of sandpaper for three yeah. weeks to get the result that you want if that's what you want. Yeah. And that was so on the car. You know, a lot of the stuff I was able to buy out of catalogs because it's just car parts. Mm -hmm. But so much of that car was frankly unavailable like I wanted it. Uh, I look at, you know, I'm just kind of peeking at it because it's here in my garage, but the visors are tweed visors. Volkswagen never made a tweed visor. They made vinyl visors because Volkswagens were cheap. 
Right. And I wanted mine to look like if, if Volkswagen had a Cadillac model, right? Like GM, Chevy, kind of utilitarian. And then the Cadillac was the step up, right? It had all the nice leather and whatever else. I wanted my Carmen Ghia to look like if Volkswagen had offered that higher step up in, in quality, that's what it is. Well, it had, that, that required a bunch of pieces and parts that flat out just did not exist. And there's only one way to get those, and that's to make them. And whether that's a leather-wrapped steering wheel, which Volkswagen never, ever did a leather-stitched steering wheel, um, whether it was a tweed headliner, uh, on and on and on, I, all those things you have to make. And I, I look at everything that I do uh, that way. A lot of times when I'm watching your videos, I'm always thinking, like, um, it's really impressive that you're building something and shooting it at the same time. And, and there's, a, there's some other you know, DIY type people that I know that do projects and stuff. And, and I feel the same way about them. It's like, to me, it's hard enough just to do the project and then you're going to make a video of the project. And so you're like setting up camera angles and lighting while at the same time you're drilling this thing. It's like, that's, that's like doing four things at once. It's pretty impressive. I can tell you it, at minimum, it triples the time that it takes to build something. It probably quadruples it. And I, I really enjoy I really enjoy the filmmaking aspect of it. That's for me it's another creative outlet. Mm -hmm. And so so I don't even think about it. I'm I have a rule if I'm in a hurry to make something, I don't put I don't make a video of it. Uh in fact last weekend I can't remember what I was making and I was just you know, I just made it. And and it was a down and dirty, fast, just get it done kind of thing. Mm -hmm. No video. But um, most of the things I make in my garage, I try to not be in a hurry. You know, I have, I have a real job as an architect. <laughs> I make money there. I don't have to make money selling things and making things. And I do it purely for enjoyment. And I, I think it's cool when I drive up to my office in the car that I built, that I step out and that car represents such a big part of my personality in the way that it looks and, and the actual car that it is and, and all those kinds of things and the things that sit on my desk, the all those little things that I have here in my garage that I've built when people walk in, they immediately understand who I am and what I do. See, okay, so th to me that is like the heart and soul of a designer and a maker right there. Like you, you want to put your personality into the things that surround you. And yeah. um, I'm a different type of person and, and I just, I, when I see other people that maybe have computers that have stickers on them and stuff, or they, you know, people have this, this urge to modify the stuff. Um, I don't have that gene. <laughs> I, I'm envious of that gene because it's, it, people come up with some really cool stuff, yourself included. Um, but I'm just kind of like, this is just stuff that I need to do a job and then I'm just going to leave it scattered about my office and and make it to where I can't sit anything down anymore but uh no I, I just kind of wanted to close with that like to, to me that when I when you talked about wanting to put your personality into the things around you I think there's something fundamental at the heart of soul of a designer and as a maker that that makes makes you want to do that and uh and I think if if people who are listening that are out there have that they should find um avenues to express that in every way they possibly can absolutely i would say one last thing joe sorry to turn around here. uh and 
and I'm not trying to sell things or pimp things. I think it's important for people to understand if they have those thoughts, how important it is sometimes to execute it, how satisfying it can be to execute on those things. And one of the things that I, I carry with me almost all the time in my pocket, I have these pens that I make. I call them the twisted Sharpie. It's a Sharpie pen. Mm -hmm. And I'm a welder, metal worker, and work in the shop. And it has my initial on it, a G. And I, I sell them and people buy them. People who do metal work just love these things, which is awesome. It is so cool to see other people with the pins. People have pulled them out in front of me when I've been places. They're like, oh, my God, I have your pin in my pocket. And they pull it out. And it's like, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but then I watch a lot of people on YouTube and a lot of makers have bought these pens from me. And so I'll see their videos and they'll leave them curiously around in the background of their videos. And it's such a cool thing to see my pen on somebody else's bench doing things. But I, I made this pen very specifically to put in my pocket. So when I, people would know I'm a metal worker. I'm, you know, I, I'm a designer. I think about things a little differently than most people. And I think of all the things that I've made in my shop, these things probably do the best at describing me when I give it to somebody to write with. It, it's just kind of a cool thing. So you get that joy out of seeing people with a pen. You get that joy out of seeing buildings that you've built. And uh, I, I just, I, I think you're an inspiration to people to embrace that side of themselves and put themselves out there and, um, put their personality into things that other people can enjoy and could maybe even outlive them. I think that's, I think that's a, I think that's a noble place to, to end this. What do you think? I think that's awesome, Joe. I, I worked really hard on that for the last 10 seconds. Um, where's a place that people can go? You have a website, right? I do. It's gregsgaragekc.com. And I sell a few things on there. Uh, I did, I've done a bunch of collaborations with some other folks on YouTube and other makers including and, me. Um, pardon me? Including me. Including Joe. And uh, so I sell, I sell some of those things, but I'm also a guitar maker and I work on guitars all the time. And I've been concentrating a lot lately on guitar making and uh, guitar setup tools, which has been really fun for me to rethink how I do that. I've been working on guitars since I was a little kid. And, you know, kind of rethinking the tools that I use and how to make them better. Again, it's, it's just kind of that cool process of, of rethinking what's already there. But yeah, so gregsgaragekc.com and then actually Skyscraper Guitars is my guitar website. And then, of course, my YouTube channel, Greg's Garage. Yeah, I was going to try to work in the whole music thing because you, you, I'm sure you got a lot of stories. You like toured with a lot of major acts and stuff. Like there's that whole side of you that... We'll have to cover that next time, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that is a, that's a, that's a really fun time that I had in my life, for sure. So, <laughs> All right, well, cool. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Hey, thanks for listening to the Answers with Joe podcast. If you found this through the YouTube channel and you are not subscribed on iTunes or Google Play, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to be coming back with interviews and repeats of old videos just like this all the time. And if you found this on the podcast player, then uh, know I have a YouTube channel on, uh, well, on YouTube. Just do a little search for Answers with Joe, and you'll find all kinds of fun science and comedy stuff to keep you entertained and thinking about cool stuff for the rest of the week. And you can find this in all my podcasts and all my videos at AnswersWithJoe.com. And if you enjoyed it, a nice review in the iTunes or Google Play Store goes a long way. And, of course, word of mouth 
means everything. So any, anything you can do to help get the word out, I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. I will catch you next time. Have a good one.